Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, it says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in cloth garments or soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? Prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this passage, Jesus is going to introduce us in part to what it means to be great. And we should begin by asking that very simple question. What does it mean to be great? And of course, it all depends on who you ask. In our culture, we often think of greatness in terms of exceptional accomplishments. And we can all point to great athletes or authors or artists. Great men like Winston Churchill linked greatness to responsibility. And Leo Tolstoy wrote, quote, there is not greatness where there is not simplicity and goodness and truth. In the end, no matter who talks about it or what they have to say, the most important person's opinion is the Lord Jesus Christ. How is greatness defined by our king? And in this passage, Jesus is going to defend his friend and forerunner, John the Baptist. Jesus wants to make sure the people don't have a false view of John or a deficient view of his ministry or his message. He, they, he wants people to understand his role in God's plan. And so Jesus will ask the same question three times with the most slight variation. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? In verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 9. Jesus will give three answers. John is no reed bending, swaying, shaking by the cultural or political or religious winds. John may have had questions. But the reality is he is firm in his faith. And clearly John isn't like other great people who run the risk of being corrupted by power or influence or convenience or 
comfort like those who were occupying Rome's palaces or even Jerusalem's stately palaces. John was a prophet. But Jesus says he's something more than a prophet in verse 9. He's called by God with a specific and a unique role. He is a divine messenger in verse 10. And so Jesus is going to honor the one who honored him. He's going to honor the herald. And I'm going to suggest to you that the Lord honors all who stand firm in faith and who persevere in pain and who remain in loyalty to Jesus. And so it begins with, in part, a character issue in verses 7 and 8. What clues do the New Testament give us concerning John's character? Whatever it means to be great, it seems to be linked to character. And this is one of the tragedies in our own culture and society where so many voices will tell you in so many places that character doesn't matter. But character has never mattered more than it does right now. John the Baptist is loyal. He's selfless. He's humble. He's truthful. He's fearless. Concerning his birth, the angel told Zacharias, his father, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He'll also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for their Lord. In that prophecy and statement, we are overwhelmed with information about this particular person. In the end, God sent him to prepare people to meet God. Do you realize that that's really your pastor's ultimate job? My job, when I come here every Sunday, when I stand behind this pulpit, when I leave the pulpit and I, I meet you in the lobby or I, or I meet you wherever it is that we happen to be meeting, every time we meet, I am pushing you towards eternity. Everything that I say and everything that I do, I'm trying to prepare you to meet God. And that's exactly what John was doing. And that's exactly what we do for one another. At the end of John chapter 3, a debate emerged about, among John's disciples concerning which baptism is valid. The one that was performed by John the Baptist or the one that was performed by Jesus. At that point, John provided persuasive testimony that ended the debate. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the bridegroom, while John is simply the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus must increase and become greater and greater, while John must become less and less. In his own words, he said, he, Jesus, must increase, and I, John, must decrease. 
in this simple passage again, we're overwhelmed to discover that the beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness is to then become less. And then the perfection of greatness is to become nothing. So that when a person says to you, you're nothing, you can go, that's the kindest thing anyone has ever said to me. Thank you. John was never annoyed by the success of Jesus. He was the first to admit that Jesus is the most important person. He confessed that he was unworthy even to lace his sandals. Pride and greatness are never good companions. And great people admit weakness and deficiency. And so we move from the character issue to the conviction issue. In verse 7, it says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What's interesting to me is that this question is asked in the midst of a congregation I'm going to even use the term crowd. This is a gathering. This is a public statement. This isn't, this isn't private information. Jesus is speaking openly and publicly. And the reason why I think that this is interesting in and of itself is it causes me to think about what Jesus says about me and heaven and what he says about you. Don't you ever wonder? Don't you wonder what Jesus is saying to everyone in heaven about you? John was a man of enormous conviction. He wasn't swayed by opinion polls or social trends or cultural decline. John the Baptist was not one of those people who held his finger to the wind to try to determine which way it was blowing and then use that information to adjust God's message. He would not be blown by other people's opinions. John Corson said it really in a great way. He wrote, quote, far from being a reed shaken by the wind, John was a wind shaking the reed. I like that. He had a message from God for the people of God. He wasn't interested in other people's messages. He also wasn't interested in other people's excuses. Many people also have a message, but it's not a message from God. And some people even have a message for God. Maybe some of you have even tried to give God a message like, leave me alone. But then God follows you and he speaks to you and he reminds you that he loves you and he's not willing to leave you alone. So what is John, what is Jesus suggesting? Is John a trustworthy messenger? Yes. Is he wishy-washy or bold? Jesus says bold. 
Jesus is in effect reminding everyone who's listening, have you ever heard John preach a message that wasn't from God or that compromised the message of God? The answer is no. Did, did John change the message? No. Reeds, by the way, were common along the riverbanks. The Jordan, which begins at the southern part of the Sea of Galilee and then skirts through the Rift Valley and then empties into the Dead Sea, was found on either side. You could find marshes and reeds. And those reeds were always light, flexible, hollow. They're the opposite of everything that John the Baptist was. People with weak convictions are easily persuaded to abandon those convictions. And Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll convict us. He'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And so where do you stand? That becomes the implication. Jesus isn't just simply reminding his heroes where John stood, but it begs the question of where we stand. And we know that the New Testament will reveal that when the religious leaders are confronted with the information about John the Baptist, Jesus asks them the question because they're, they're provoking Jesus about how you do miracles. And Jesus says, I'm going to answer your question, but first you need to answer me a question. The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from men? Do you remember their answer? Well, if we say from God, he's going to say, then why didn't you obey him? And if we say from men, then all the people are going to, they're going to bum rush us and they're going to stone us and they're going to hit us with sticks because everybody believes he's from God. So Jesus says, which is it? And they go, well, we don't know. And then Jesus says, well, then neither am I going to tell you. Josh McDowell, in a book about conviction, defines conviction. He says, quote, having convictions can be defined as being so thoroughly convinced that Christ and his word are both objectively true and relationally meaningful that you act on your belief regardless of the consequences. And I love that. Having convictions can be defined as being so thoroughly convinced that Jesus and his word are objectively true, relationally meaningful, and you act on that regardless of the consequences. The essential doctrines of Christianity are objectively true. They provide the truer foundation of meaningful relationship with God so that you can have a meaningful relationship with each other. When the early church father Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor, the latter sought to make the Greek Christian recant on his faith and, and his trust in the Lord. He tried every way to, to cause him to walk away, turn away from Jesus. The emperor discussed it with his advisors. What was to be done with the prisoner? Shall I put him in the dungeon? 
the emperor asked. No, one of the counselors said, then he's going to be glad to go because he doesn't want anything more in his life than a little peace and quiet so he can enjoy relationship and fellowship with God and bask in the mercies of the Lord. Well, then I'll execute him, said the emperor. No, the counselor said, then that's his ticket to heaven. You will be, he will be so grateful to you to be the instrument of God that brings him into eternity. And then the emperor said, well, then what, what am I supposed to do? And the counselor said, the only thing that will cause Chrysostom grief and pain is to cause him to sin. Chrysostom isn't afraid of anything other than offending God and being found in a place of disrepute. I wish that same sentiment could somehow catch fire in our heart. And so Jesus will move to the current issue. Look what it says in verse 8. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's homes. And what did the evidence of John's lifestyle reveal about his character? Jesus says, remember you go out. What did you see? They know what he's wearing. He's wearing camel hair. This is rough and tough. His diet is locust and honey. George Washington Carver tells the story in his own autobiography about being a slave in the deep south. And he talks about how the, the black people at that particular moment in time were given the least and the last and the roughest. They had shirts that weren't necessarily made of cotton, but of the worst, coarsest material that was called flax. And he talks about having an older brother. He said that wearing flax was like having needles stuck in you all day long. It was painful and horrible. It scratched and it would sometimes rub you raw. And he said that my brother would always offer to wear my shirt in order to break it in. But John is a person who's not interested in comfort. People who want to pamper themselves and indulge themselves or wear the most comfortable clothing or have the most comfortable life. But that's not John. He's not interested in comfort. He's not interested in ease. And he's certainly not interested in impression. John's consumed with one thing and one thing only. His one consumption is to hear from God and share the message. And John's devotion to ministry made eating and drinking and clothing as only something that was necessary to keep the body alive and to be modestly adorned. You see, the essence of greatness is to know God. And then it's to know his word. 
And then it's to know his will. Because if you know him and you know his word and you know his will, then you're going to know that he loves you and you're going to know that he cares about you. And then you're going to understand what is going on as Jesus is trying to impress upon the people the true nature and the true character of who John is. And then there's the calling issue in verses 9 through 11. But what did you go out to see, he says? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. A lot of people were self-proclaimed prophets. But it is Jesus who gives him the designation prophet. And remember the fundamental meaning of that word. The fundamental meaning of that word is a person who tells the truth. It has a broader application. When there's a specific claim. And if the specific claim is to hear from God with the message of God. And he quotes... Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. That's an interesting expression, both in the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek. But in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3, the expression before your face means in front of you or to go ahead of you or to precede you. So when Jesus says, behold, I send my messenger before your face, it means in front of you, to proceed you. An expanded translation interpreted by Jesus reads, quote, behold, I, Jehovah, send my messenger, John the Baptist, to be the forerunner for you, the Messiah, to prepare the people for your coming. John is both prophet and prophecy. He is prophet because he tells the truth and prophecy because God long ago predicted that this would happen. John's ministry was to prepare the nation for Jesus and then present Jesus to the nation. That's exactly what we find in Luke chapter 1 verse 15, John chapter 1 verse 29. And what was the call of Jesus? To present God to the nation and the nation to God. John understands that the coming of Jesus meant the coming of God. What could be more important than that? John was great because of his character. He was great because of his convictions. But he was also great because of his calling. John was called prophet. And he has the distinct privilege of being a prophet who was foretold, prophesied in advance. John was chosen to announce the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus asks the crowd that third question. What did you go out to see? Prophet? Well, the obvious answer is yes. By the way, in the ancient world, 
John had a large and dedicated following. If in your mind you picture a guy with 20 or 30 people, you would be totally mistaken. Picture thousands. And then picture 15 to 20,000 people who show up to hear you speak in the middle of the desert. How do we know? Because of Josephus, who writes about him. Because there was a lingering reality that took place throughout the whole first century as people talked about this amazing person. A prophet received his call or appointment directly from God. Some prophets like Jeremiah or John the Baptist were called before birth. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. But their privilege wasn't in their birthright. Their authority came from God who gave them the message. So who can match the eloquence and the brilliance of Isaiah or the depth of emotion and melancholy of Jeremiah, or the dramatic and dogged spirit of Ezekiel. The prophet desired to please God. The prophet had only one goal in life, and that was to successfully deliver the message and to not misrepresent the message. The call of the prophet required that he not be intimidated or threatened by his audience. And so Jesus, in verse 11, says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. By the way, we have no record whatsoever of any book that he ever wrote, of any kingdom that he founded, or an army that he installed. According to John chapter 10, verse 41, he did no miracle. So what does Jesus mean when he says, assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. I'm gonna to suggest to you, just for a moment, that you consider this possibility. That whatever Jesus means by it, he really does mean it. And whatever Jesus means by it, it could quite possibly be the greatest compliment ever paid to any person, ever. We already discovered something. He was personally great in verse 11. He was spiritually significant in verse 11 and 12. He's prophetically important in verses 13 and through, through 15. In part, it must include the idea that the role that he plays in preparing the nation for the Messiah. It may also be a reference to the fact that John serves as the pinnacle. He is the highest point. He is the last expression of the old covenant dispensation. And then Jesus makes the most remarkable statement. But, Jesus says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
What in the world does that mean? And how is it even possible? Again, it can't be a reference to character or conduct or call. It might be a reference to privileges. Clearly, the immediate circle of Jesus' disciples have greater privileges. They have access to Jesus. They have knowledge of Jesus. They have the presence of Jesus. They have the words of Jesus. They have all the ministry of Jesus that's unfolding right before them. They're going to take a journey and a walk that's going to end in a cross for Jesus and a resurrection for Jesus. John MacArthur writes, although he was a spiritual giant, speaking of John the Baptist, John's unique greatness was in his role in human history, not in his spiritual inheritance in which he would be equal to every believer. Therefore, the least in the kingdom of heaven in the spiritual dimension is greater than he, that is anyone in the human dimension. And so we're faced with this paradox right in the text. Jesus wants everyone to understand John's greatness. But also not to misunderstand John's greatness. How in the world do we do that? I think that the only way that we can do it and make sense of it is to come to the conclusion that every believer is made great in Christ. In what sense? In the sense of the riches of divine grace. In what sense? The least in the kingdom of heaven obtains privileges, immediate privileges. You're born again, you're redeemed, you're reconciled, you're related to God through Christ's sacrifice. You're chosen and adopted and accepted in the beloved in Ephesians chapter one. We are forgiven all of our trespasses. We are free from the law. We are children of God. We are brought near. We are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are partners with Christ in life, in service, in suffering, and prayer. We have access to God. We have access to grace. And that's just the surface. That's just touching on the bare minimum. Charles Hodge wrote, quote, the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him and exalt him without inflating him. Every person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus has been given grace. It might come as a shock to you, but with grace comes greatness. Why? Because you're saved by grace through faith. And then we're objects of his love. We're objects of his safekeeping and power, faithfulness, peace, consolation, intercession, inheritance. The list could go on and on and on. But if you're wondering what any of this has to do with you, it has everything to do with you. About the character that you're forming in your life right at this very moment. 
about the convictions that you hold and the reality of whether or not you're willing to embrace the call that Jesus has placed on your life. Again, John MacArthur writes rightly, quote, in true greatness, the right person is always matched to the right position. A person with much potential will accomplish little if his talents aren't channeled into work that takes full advantage of those abilities, unquote. And that's why there's this ongoing invitation for you to Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Look and see what God is doing in your life. It's to examine yourself and examine your heart and then invite you to participate. Not just in church, but in the grand adventure of what it means to be a Christian living in this place and at this time. And in verse 12, look what it says. The culmination issue, and from the days of John the Baptist and, and until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. I know many of you are reading that going, what in the world does that mean? The original language can be translated in two different ways. With equal accuracy, it could mean that the kingdom of God is being attacked by violent men. It could also mean that the kingdom of God is being taken by men who are committed and aggressive. People who are willing to do the hard work of what it means to lay hold of the things of the kingdom of God. And so it could mean taken by men who are committed and aggressive, people who will lay hold. So which is it? Is the kingdom of heaven attacked by violent men or claimed by aggressive people? It might mean both. And the reason why I'm going to suggest that it might mean both is because John epitomizes that. He is the poster boy for this. He is, he's been imprisoned by violent people who are trying to make him stay quiet. Yet John is impressive and aggressive in his faith. John's a kind of a hitman for God. If you want something done and you want it done right, you call on John the Baptist. My father used to tell me a story about a guy that he knew. A police officer pulled him over and said, sorry, sir, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to check out your car and check out the trunk. Well, what do you mean you need to check out the car, check out the trunk? Yeah, we just got a report and we got to check out this car and we got to check out the trunk. He goes, oh, yeah, okay. And so he gets out of the car, the police officer goes to the trunk, he pops the trunk and there's a body in the trunk and his friend says, I'm never going to rent from Enterprise ever again. 
You've got to have plausible deniability of how to go forward. Some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought that they could force the hand of God, ushered in the end of the age by a strict study of the law, a strict regimen of washing, intense fast, fastings. The same is true among religious groups even today. There are religious people who believe that you can force the hand of God, that you can manipulate the events that are coming to pass. Radical jihadi Muslims believe that if they can create chaos and confusion, that they can force the reappearance of Jesus and the Mahdi and create a global caliphate where the world finally submits to God, but make no mistake about it, what they mean is submit to them. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God can be forced, manipulated, coerced, or tricked into doing something that he doesn't want to do? I think you're right. Do you think human beings can force God to delay his plan or abandon his plan? I think you're right. But some people think that they can. Maybe sometimes in moments of weakness, you think that you can. But the truth is, how do we differentiate between the two? And will we be men and women who want to not force, manipulate, or coerce but that we want to, with energy, enthusiasm, and grace, make ourselves available to the plan of God. And look what it says in verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. The passage simply means that the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures point to Find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. God's dealing with mankind is defined by Jesus and then fulfilled by Jesus. The testimony of Jesus concerning the Old Testament prophets and the law is that they point to him. And so in verse 14, he, he's going to remind us that the last word from the last prophet in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, I'm going to send you Elijah. I think in verse 13 there's something else though. The expression until John, I think seems to speak of the closing of an age and the beginning of another. It hints at what would become an old covenant and a new covenant. It also hints that John is the next to the last prophet. If John is the next to the last, and if Jesus is the last man, prophetically speaking, then Jesus is intimating that he's the final word. He has the final word about what God wants and what God says. And remember what I said to you. The first 10 chapters 
give us the revelation of Jesus. But now the journey begins of rejection, of rebellion. And so Jesus says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. What in the world is he saying? Some have mistakenly thought that he, this means that John the Baptist is somehow the reincarnation of Elijah. But that can't be true because John's alive when Jesus is making this, this statement. Well, then how did Jesus meet with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration if he is in fact John the Baptist? The prophet, according to the Bible, would be like Elijah in the spirit, the power, and the anointing of Elijah. John himself denied being Elijah in John chapter 1, verse 21. So again, what's the point that Jesus is making? The Jews will reject the forerunner, John. They'll reject the Messiah for the most part. The nation will refuse the king's messenger. The nation will refuse the king. And therefore, Elijah will come again at the end of the age, perhaps as one of the two final witnesses who are spoken of before the literal return of Jesus in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. The nation will ultimately reject the messenger of Jesus. And then they'll ultimately reject Jesus himself. In verse 15, it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what that means. The presence of ears on a person's head isn't always indicative that they heard what you said. There are three words that I listen carefully for. From my wife, from my children, from my grandchildren. When they say these three words, I know that I'm in trouble. You're not listening. Have you ever heard someone say, that went in one ear and out the other? That's exactly what he's talking about. This is a warning. I wasn't listening. Jesus has said, John's the forerunner. I'm the Messiah. He announced a kingdom. I'm the king. He's been extending an offer to turn from sin, to experience repentance. One Bible teacher said true greatness isn't being like John the Baptist. It's being like Jesus. There are many wonderful, laudable, notable things that we can embrace. But in the end, we always fall short unless we do exactly what John did. He must increase. We must decrease. Greatness may be an expression of spirit. It might be something created by position. But I want to remind you of something. 
John's greatness was found in his nearness to Christ. And that's exactly where your greatness will be found. Greatness will always be linked to character. It will always be linked to conviction and call. And John will preach repentance from sin and faith in God. And John was a faithful witness who pointed people to God's solution for the problem of sin. But in the end, his one true ministry was to make Jesus real to a nation that needed to know the truth about what God believed and what God said and what God cared about. It'll always be true in your life as well. Charles Spurgeon said, you can't preach conviction of sin unless you've suffered it. You can't preach repentance unless you've practiced it. You can't preach faith unless you've exercised it. True preaching, Spurgeon said, is artesian. It is a well that springs up from the depths of the soul. If Christ isn't a well within us, there'll never be an overflow from us. And you'll never, ever be able to do what God's called you to do, which is to prepare everyone closest to you to push them in the direction of knowing God, loving God, and then making preparation for eternity. So what does it mean to be great? You start off by becoming less. And then you become less until you become nothing. So again, the next time a person says to you, you're nothing. What's your response? Thank you. What a wonderful compliment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would be wonderful if we could become so much less and Jesus could become so much more. Lord, we pray that we would begin to ask and answer the question of what it means to truly be great in God's kingdom. Lord, we remember as children singing, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, Learn to be the servant of all. And so, Lord, we pray that sacrifice and service, love and opportunity will come to us. And that, Lord, we'll have an opportunity to impart a little light, a little joy, and a little grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.